Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Christine Gall, DRPH, about the article, Pediatric Triage in a Severe Pandemic, Maximizing Survival by Establishing Triage Thresholds, published in the September 2016 issue of Critical Care Medicine. This study explores the timely topic of how to achieve optimal population survival during a mass casualty pandemic that overwhelms pediatric critical care resources despite surge capacity efforts. This study uses real data from children hospitalized in U.S. pediatric ICUs to determine whether a process could be deployed that selects children for treatment using data collected at initial triage that would result in greater numbers of child survivors than a first-come, first-served method of resource allocation. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Gong. It's my pleasure. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I'd like to share that the state of Ohio, and in particular the Ohio Hospital Association, funded this research. Okay, thank you. Can you start by telling us how you and your co-authors decided to do this, investigate this topic? Why did you think it was important? Absolutely. As we all know, the topic of pandemics and illnesses and injury associated with pandemics is prevalent in the news. My colleagues and I were approached by the State of Ohio Department of Public Health, as well as the Ohio Hospital Association, as they were investigating their disaster preparedness response plan and determined that they had a need to improve the robustness of their pediatric disaster response. So one of my colleagues, Dr. Philip Toltsis, who is an intensivist practicing in the state of Ohio, as well as an infectious disease practitioner and um, very involved in the pursuit of new knowledge regarding disaster preparedness for children. I was part of the group who was discussing this and was asked due to his relationships and connections with Dr. Randall Wetzel, who is the, among other things, a practicing intensivist and anesthesiologist at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, as well as the president and CEO of Virtual PICU Systems, a, a robust database that would really resource the pursuit of this topic. So at the time, I was also working at Virtual PICU Systems uh, VPS along with Dr. Wetzel, so was very excited about the potential. During our investigation, I had the opportunity to contact Dr. Robert Cantor, who is well-published in the area of pediatric pandemic response and was interested in several of his articles. And after talking with him, he asked to join our group and became a very dynamic part of our investigative team. And rounding out the group, Dr. Alex Kolker comes to us with incredible expertise in simulation and really assisted us in our methods in exploring the topic. Can you describe for us what factors would need to be in place for a triage plan to be activated in response to a mass casualty pandemic? Yes, absolutely. Our research did not pursue the idea of how to respond in the event of a typical disaster, but truly this plan, this research studied 
a mass casualty pandemic that would involve substantial numbers of children. In order for crisis standards of care to be activated, this would require that all of the activities that all of the states as well as their associated health systems have developed and designed to create surge capacity would have been overwhelmed for a substantial amount of time. So crisis standards of care requires that despite efforts at surge capacity, all systems are overwhelmed with no end in sight and crisis standards of care also requires the senior government official at the state level, a governor or designee, or somebody at the federal level would declare the crisis. Lastly, it, in our algorithm, we made the assumption that in times of crisis, critical care services largely could be practiced in alternative locations. However, the exception that we felt would require the confines of a pediatric intensive care unit as designed and as is in existence in conventional care would need to remain in place in order to manage patients who required ventilatory support, so those patients in respiratory failure. So in our model, a pandemic organism that would require or cause a substantial degree of respiratory failure would be in place in order to require crisis standards of care activation. Can you explain to us the difference between a first-come, first-serve assignment of ICU resources, which is basically what we do now, versus a triage model? Absolutely. So first-come, first-serve assumes that if a PICU bed is available when a patient that is determined um, needing or requiring critical care intervention, if that bed was available, then the patient would be admitted to the bed once they pass the determination of need for critical care. This is regardless of their anticipated duration or need for the length of critical care resources. In comparison, the triage strategy considers not only the patient's acuity or their need for critical care resources, but also the duration of their need for critical care services. We selected prediction equations for our triage algorithm that would allow us to assign individual scores that reflected both of these measures. It's important to note that when transitioning from conventional to crisis care, the focus shifts from individual patient survival to population survival, and therefore a key to this population survival being optimized is bed turnover. So you want to select patients with optimal probability of death or, or probability of survival, stated another way, as well as limited need for mechanical ventilation. Your study builds upon previous research um, that you alluded to by your co-authors, which included the development of several prediction equations and an associated triage algorithm. Can you summarize how this work served as a basis for your study? Yes, sure. The original research created a series of prediction equations that allowed progression through a triage algorithm that first sorted patients into those requiring mechanical ventilation and those who had a sustained respiratory effort independently, so did not require mechanical support. 
and then the prediction equations determined or assigned probability of death scores and duration of ventilation scores to the appropriate patients. So in our study, we used certain or two of the equations in order to assign real-time scores to patients. So one of the, the points of our study is that we wanted to be able to triage patients when they arrived for care. So at the triage station, certain assessment variables would be available, and those, those data then would determine what the individual scores were. Can you walk us through the methods that you used in your study? Sure. So this study, as we just talked about, built on the methodology that Drs. Wetzel and Toltsis created for the the original triage algorithm. We used 150,000 randomly selected records from the VPS database, which represents real pediatric intensive care admissions. We then removed scheduled admissions, making the assumption that in a crisis, scheduled admissions would be canceled. And that allowed us to study 111,174 patients that remained. Each patient was then assigned a probability of death and a predicted duration of ventilation using the prediction equations that I just mentioned. And we modeled a pandemic scenario using data from the state of Ohio. This included the fact that with surge capacity, the state of Ohio would have 280 PICU beds and would have a ventilator for every PICU bed. We also used data on deaths that were attributed to the 1918-19 Spanish influenza pandemic to model victim arrival patterns, as well as to determine the time frame that we might estimate for crisis standard of care to be activated. And this was determined to be six weeks, which in that 42-week pandemic, there was a six-week period where mortality or deaths associated to the Spanish influenza really peaked. So that's what we used to model, and I will say that that is actually what brought Dr. Robert Cantor into our study group because he was the first person that I'm aware of to use that approach in one of his previous publications. And I was intrigued by that because otherwise we would have had to just make up some assumptions and create a scenario that might not have been grounded in an actual pandemic from the past. Then, with the goal of simultaneously maximizing casualty survival, as well as bed occupancy, our colleague, Dr. Alexander Kolker, used discrete event simulation to determine optimal triage thresholds, both for the probability of death and predicted duration of ventilation. And we assumed a range between 5,000 and 10,000 victims, and this was based on a reasonable estimate of a potential victim pool extrapolated from the actual count of children residing in Ohio at the time of our study. We then used simulation to compare population survival between the triage approach that we were studying as well as the random first-come, first-served assignments of PQ bed assignments. So that was our method. So tell us about your results and how you would interpret the findings. How did you figure out population survival numbers for first-come, first-served versus a triage model and so forth? Sure. 
So our results were just quite amazing. We were able to determine that triage produced superior survival to the first-come, first-served methodology. And from our study results, we also determined that population survival, the percentage of patients who survived actually increased with the number of victims impacted. So at 5,000 victims, if we estimated 5,000 victims, the percentage improvement of survivorship with triage was at 7.4%. But when we moved up to 10,000 victims, that percentage of improvement of survivorship increased to 24%. So this truly represented, I think, an incredible finding that is worthy of further exploration by our community. But I think it's an important consideration to recognize that triage is a viable consideration when systems and services are overwhelmed in the event of a mass casualty pandemic. In your discussion, you talk about the the differences in the triage and first-come, first-serve approaches in terms of the impact on PICU occupancy rate, which obviously has practical as well as ethical considerations. Can you talk about this? How would the occupancy rates vary between the two approaches, and what are the implications of that? Sure. In first-come, first-serve, you could assume that along with victim arrival, if a patient was determined in need of critical care services and a bed was available, they would occupy the bed. So we would expect that largely occupancy rate would be at or near 100% initially at the, the start of crisis standards of care and throughout that peak crisis period, waning off at the end as the victim presentation diminished. However, one of the kind of, I guess, initially surprising findings for triage was that immediately after crisis standard of care activation and the activation of our triage schema, the occupancy rate in the PICU beds actually dropped substantially and then within a few days picked up to near 100% and then remained at 100% for most of the duration of that six-week crisis period. After discussion of these findings with my colleagues, we then determined that this actually was not surprising after all because moving from conventional admission practices to this extreme alternative of triage really was a very different way of looking at admission of patients and resource allocation. And as a result, there would be a markedly different admission pattern initially that would then result in optimal ICU occupancy and utilization of ICU resources. The implication of this, however, is that this is going to be a clearly unique strategy that is going to require a lot of discussion both within the critical care communities, the public health community, as well as the general population at large, because it kind of goes against common thinking and and traditional human nature that if a resource is available and somebody's in need, you give the resource to the person. 
However, again, with the concept that we're moving away from the focus being on the individual survival of each patient to overall population survival and with regard or, or with consideration that our results clearly show that there's an improvement in overall population survival, and it's largely due to the turnover of beds, which requires selection of the most ideal patients to receive treatment in order to capture that very necessary bed turnover, that's a really key component of this, and it's going to require a lot of discussion. Yeah, so essentially what would happen in in the crisis standard of care is that patients who do not need mechanical ventilation would be cared for outside of an ICU. Some of those patients might now be ordinarily be cared for in an ICU. But in addition, those children who were at highest risk of death or prolonged mechanical ventilation would be triaged to palliative care and not admitted to the ICU and not uh, mechanically ventilated? Uh, Yes. That, that is the impact of the triage. And that's how the ICU bed occupancy, at least initially, would drop. Right, exactly. That is ethically challenging, as you already said. What are the ethical advantages of the triage scheme? Well, one might think or assume that in a disaster, you're assuming that not only healthcare systems are overwhelmed, but the social fabric, all other social services are equally overwhelmed. And in that circumstance, it is reasonable to consider that people who are more well-resourced or socioeconomically advantaged might have better access to the transportation necessary to take them to healthcare resources, might have better knowledge to determine their need to go access or request critical care resources. And therefore, just the selection of the presentation the patients who are presenting early might be skewed towards people who have greater advantages. So the disparity factor might be in play here because we might be giving the beds first to the people who are the the best resourced rather than a random sample of patients as they present. So by the time others might present to request resources, the beds may be full, and those services might not be available. The strength of your study is that you have used actual PICU patients to create this model. So you essentially, you have a real-world scenario in terms of likely patient outcomes. What are the limitations of your study? Actually, uh, the strength is actually also uh, a limitation, and that is that our data are from real PICU admissions. We selected only non-elective admissions. However, also this is related to care provided during conventional time, so using normal standards of care. In a crisis, standards of care would be modified, relaxed to support the crisis scenario. So that is one potential limitation to consider. Also, our survival calculations make the assumption, as we talked about earlier, that all patients that are diverted to palliative care would universally die. In likelihood, some of those patients may actually survive. However, we also determined that if that were the case, the distribution of survivors in that palliative care population would likely be uniform between the triage group and the first-come, 1st serve group. So we didn't address that topic any further. 
Also, another limitation of this study is that we did not explore the option of reevaluating patients following admission to the PICU. So if there was a change, for example, if they did not follow the predicted duration of ventilation or if their acuity changed substantially, their need for resources might be impacted. Several of the adult schemes actually do do a 48 to 72 hour re-triage. And so that was beyond the scope of this study, but would be worthwhile topic for exploration in the future. What do you think are the next steps in exploring this topic? Well, clearly that whole issue related to occupancy rate requires exploration. If, you know, you were assigned to the triage station and applying the triage calculations and determining whether a patient was going to be accepted for treatment or diverted to palliative care, and you knew that a bed was available for those that you diverted, this would be a challenging topic. So we really need to talk about the methods used, the results, so that people can get comfortable wrapping their mind around the concept of in a crisis when you're looking at ultimately the overall population survival, that this is truly a method that would create those results over first come, first serve. So again, first, the critical care, the critical care community has to buy into this approach. Next, there clearly has to be discussions within the public health community key stakeholders as well as the general public really need to be aware of this idea and the notion that if we really do move to population survival, that the impact to this on an individual child means that they could be denied treatment when a resource is available. Again, a very, very difficult scenario. And clearly, it goes without mentioning probably that I hope that this research never needs to be used in practice. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. <laughs> it's just hard to think about that. And also, I think as a next step, we need to consider future triage schemes that include the idea of perhaps recalculating or the, re- the triage thresholds or creating dynamic triage thresholds throughout a pandemic. And maybe in that way, we could actually reduce bed vacancies. So if there was a dynamic way to recalculate as you got new information, either on predicted number of victims or the anticipated length of the the crisis period or the acuity of the patients, we might be able to adjust those thresholds to admit greater numbers of patients into care. So that would be another consideration for future research. And also, whenever possible, I think, as pandemics occur in the future, it's really important for us to further study the effectiveness of this approach using real data from pandemics whenever possible. So if we can capture those data on actual pandemic victims, that would be an ideal next step as well. This is really a fascinating topic. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, I would just like to thank my entire research team and the staff of VPS 
who supported not only the statistical validation of our work, but also the creation of, of a calculator that would allow somebody at the point of triage to, to simply enter quick numbers or quick values, and all of the calculations would be made into the background, so there wouldn't be a lot of effort in regards to determining whether a patient would be passing or not passing triage. But the other thing that I would like to share in particular is I, I recently learned that one of my co-author colleagues recently passed. Dr. Bob Cantor had a heroic battle with pancreatic cancer. I just wanted to, in his memory, just mention that I am so fortunate to have had the opportunity to learn from him and work from him. He was a true, passionate, intensivist and his passion for emergency preparedness and his contribution to our knowledge will live on beyond him. He is just somebody who is a very meaningful, not only professional and physician, but as a person, he was very special, and I just wanted to honor him. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for talking with us today, Christine. Thank you, Dr. Parker. We have been talking with Dr. Christine Gall about the article, Pediatric Triage in a Severe Pandemic, Maximizing Survival by Establishing Triage Thresholds, published in the September 2016 issue of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.